if we want to learn about contemplation and meditation, there are three ways. The first way is to sit down and meditate, and a lot of teachers will tell you that's all you need to do. So great news, everybody can go home now. Um, I don't deny that often we want something for our minds a bit, so we can go to a theologian, we can listen to sermons, we can read the mystics, um, people who can explain things to us, that's great and that's also um, something that we might need to do. Um, today we're going to do something else. We go to stories and poems that look rather than tell. So they show us things on the example of other people's stories and thoughts, allow us to um, experience something vicariously, which can be a great and indirect way to learn because it might bypass reason and go straight to the heart. And so I would like to, today I would like to encourage you to do things we may no longer do very often in these um, days of the um, smartphone and the rest of it. Read very long novels. I've actually got a pile of my Russian novels under my chair. They're all like this. Read very long Russian novels um, and read poetry. So the morning I will talk about novels and in the afternoon I'll talk about poetry. And I, you will you'll be able to guess which authors I like better and not so much and so on. Um, why are writers sometimes so nice to have around? Um, Olga Sidakova, who is this lady, and I will talk about her last, she actually explicitly warns against conflating writing with religious confession or with religious teaching. She often gets asked, is your writing, is your poetry supposed to do orthodox Christian? And she, who is a very um, devout orthodox believer, invariably replies that if she claimed that, she would need to vouch for her work to correspond to doctrine. She can't do that, she doesn't want to do that, so, which is why she says no. And so the writer, in that sense, has a freedom from dogma, from church learning, that's perhaps similar to the freedom of the mystic, freedom of personal experience that can sometimes be very baffling. So if you're baffled, that's good. Um, so this morning we're going to look at two very well-known classics from the 19th century who wrote very fat novels. Um, Count Lev Tolstoy, the first one with the long beard, and Fyodor Dostoevsky, backed by popular demand or backed by personal preference. So they write in a distinct historical context, and a bit of that context is on the board. Um, so they were deep relevant to their own, to a particular time and place. Well, I don't, want to, um, I don't want to talk much about that. We need a bit to understand where they're coming from. But as all great artworks, they have certain eternal qualities that make them relevant way beyond their own time. So they, they reach conclusions that are universally valid today, and that's how they can help us understand and deepen our practice. The, the intellectual background that Tolstoy and Dostoevsky were working with, or rather against, are rationalism, materialism, and positivism. Oh my god, a lot of isms. Um, so these were the intellectual hot topics 
at the time where they were writing. And the, so, so rationalism, the tendency to treat reason not only as the highest faculty of the human being, and I'm going to argue that we are very much likely to still do that, but also as a faculty that, if only developed enough, if only our reason is good enough, we will be able to basically comprehend the universe. So a result of the scientific revolution, a result of the Enlightenment, and I think we have moved on quite significantly from that. So you base your, your, your opinions on reason and on knowledge, certainly not on religious belief, and certainly not on your emotions. Materialism, simple, the belief that nothing exists except matter. Um, and positivism, if you want a philosophical system that will only recognize that which, you can, that which can be verified by scientific proof. You know, logical proof, mathematical proof, all that. Rejects metaphysics. So if you want a triple whammy for religious thought. Um, so, and it was realized in, the, in a drive, and I'm really generalizing horribly, um, in a drive to organize society according to rational principles. And of course, if you do that, the individual human being becomes a specimen. Right? Things that can be scientifically proved are proven are the things that we all have in common. For example, human beings need oxygen. Um, of course, these things were not only there in Russia. They had come over from the West, um, from the Enlightenment first, later from thinkers, atheists such as Feuerbach, Marx, Nietzsche. But what happened in Russia was that they met um, a, a society that had a church on the one hand that was completely untrained in philosophical argument. So the Russian Orthodox Church had no Thomas Aquinas, no tradition of scholasticism, no tradition of doing theology with the help of rigorous argument. So that's one thing. Then Peter the Great and later Catherine, um, two czars who were reformers and westernizers, they were desperately trying to secularize society. And they had put the church, which had been very powerful, under state control. So this, the church was weakened. So these ideas were, in a sense, very taken very literally. And of course, the Enlightenment itself was a Western import. And Russia had no native at the time, no native philosophical tradition. So a lot of people who started burning with these ideas took them very literally. And these ideas were realized later in the 20th century in the Russian Revolution. So this is a horrible five-minute generalizing overview. So um, that's the background against which Tolstoy and Dostoevsky were working. And I think that is, that is important. Um, of course, the absence of a philosophical, theological tradition, the absence of scholasticism in the Orthodox Church means it was never as suspicious to contemplation as the Western Church. So it also had a good, it also had a good um, consequence. Anyway, so um, both Tolstoy and Dostoevsky were deeply religious in different ways. They were also different in other respects in their narrative manner. 
But they espoused a style that I think most people would call psychological realism. So they're exploring the psychology of their characters and working out ideas, and that can be very helpful. And the problems, I would say, the problems they're tackling on, on, a, on an overall level are very relevant to us today um, because we fetishize reason as a way to control our lives. So capitalism, the drive towards self-optimization, um, desire to shape, to control, to get results and get them fast. We might even meditate in order to get results. Um, you know, I meditate because it makes me, because it makes me um, productive or it makes me calm. Um, and common mental health issues such as depression and anxiety, they are characterized by people locked in their head and um, into cycles of compulsive negative thought. So in a sense, the living in our heads, the idea of calculate and formulate and control and influence and fiddle and, 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 and compartmentalize everything, I think has massively compounded the problem of a lot of people suffering from mental health problems from really living inside their head. And I mean, look at my head if you want, if you don't want to look at yours. It's round, surrounded by a thick skull. If you live only in there, that life's very limited. So, um, sorry, this was flippant. Um, but anyway, I, um, and if you want, Tolstoy and Dostoevsky, they both actually portray mental ill health to very, very um, accurate, um, um, to a very accurate degree. And people with psychological training, I think, um, if you read Anna Karenina and if you read her descent into madness, it's very, very, very accurate of somebody becoming obsessed. Anyway, let's start with the generalization. So we will talk about Tolstoy, or I will talk about Tolstoy, and um, then we will um, have a break, and then I'll do Dostoevsky. Um, so it's quite, a, it's quite arrogant to say I'll do both Tolstoy and Dostoevsky before lunch, right? <laughs> anyway, um, so Tolstoy actually, um, here you can see him plowing. He was very much, um, he was very much later in his life um, a convert to a simple way of life. He um, underwent a spiritual crisis in the late 1870s, actually around the time that he was writing Anna Karenina, then started writing religious tracts, including a strange synthetic treatment of the Gospels. Um, and he basically, what he did, he denounced excessive church ritual and, and what he called mysticism, which is not contemplation or anything, but the, um, the, the way that the church sometimes shrouds things in mystery. And he distilled a vision of Jesus as a worldly teacher of nonviolence. So the religion of Jesus cleansed of dogma and miracles. The Orthodox Church didn't like it. At some point, he was excommunicated. Um, but he said one has to choose between the creed, which sets forth doctrine, and the Sermon on the Mount, which sets forth practical religion. And he went for practical religion. We may not agree with that at all. It's just something that might be worth knowing. Um, so he reduced Jesus' teaching to a set of worldly rules. 
And he very much, his idea of nonviolence very much later influenced Gandhi. So Gandhi is one of the great followers of, um, of Tolstoy. So Anna Karenina, I'm going to put you on the spot. Anybody read it? Oh, loads of people. Even those who haven't read it, tell me how Anna Karenina ends. Good, thank you. Brilliant, thanks. That's exactly what I wanted. Brilliant. Um, yes, she throws herself under a train, so, you know, and people say, oh, another of these 19th century heroines who tries to break free, who falls in love, who commits adultery, and you know, like Madame Bovary, and Tolstoy kills her. It's all correct, up to a point. Um, so what most people don't remember um, is that the novel has two strands that are kind of loosely intertwined and they're foils to each other. Anna Karina throws herself under a train at the end of part seven, and then novel goes, runs on for a thick part eight, um, which is completely devoted to Tolstoy's hero, Konstantin Lurvin, um, who is Anna's counterpoint. Um, and he is, her, he, is, he is a positive hero in the sense but positive heroes are boring. They're incredibly boring, especially if they're virtuous. So you kind of need, you need a way of, of introducing him and of showing that he is virtuous without always saying that he is, um, that is effective. I'm not saying that is the only reason for the Anna story. The Anna story is brilliant. I don't, no, I can't say that I'm being recorded. Um, but the, um, it, 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 the book is a page turner. I am not a great follower of Tolstoy, let's put it that way, but the book is a page turner. I absolutely know, know where I am. Anyway, so um, he is, so Anna is rushing around in the city. They're exploring the same questions in different ways. What is the meaning of life? Anna is rushing around in the city. Leuven likes the countryside, seeks contacts with the peasants. Anna is embroiled in an adulterous affair. He is marrying the woman he loves and starts a family. More importantly, perhaps, forgive me the sarcasm, more importantly, perhaps, Anna's thought process is circular and closed, and he is fundamentally open. So Anna actually, of course, tells story, the author being in control of his narrative. She is set up from the very beginning. She believes in fates and omens. At the very beginning, she sees a man who dies under a train and says this means bad things. And lo and behold, in the end, she throws herself under one. So she is closed from the very beginning. She's passive. She can't act. She's stuck in this vicious thought process. Everything that's happening is about her. She's completely, in that sense, self-obsessed. Everything that's happening has something to do to her, with her and means something about her. So she is creating these pathways in her head that lead her to suicide. Norvin, um, interestingly enough, and now this could go on, is also um, suffering a suicidal crisis. Despite having it all, the man is blissfully happy. He's married to the woman he loves. She successfully delivered a baby boy. And his estate is going well, but the man wants to kill himself. Um, but here's crisis. Can everybody see this? So I've got loads of these little text bits. So he had looked at the questions of life and death through these new convictions, he has become interested in philosophy. Um, and he had been horrified 
um, to not so much at death as at life without the slightest knowledge of whence it came. So he is starting to explore this idea, um, what, what does life actually mean? Will I, how will I die? Will I, what is the meaning of it all? And he applies the philosophical ideas that he has been acquainted with. So, so, that, so he, he, this is very much at the end. And he, um, he, he suffers great despair. And this, this passage actually runs on. Interestingly enough, of course, while his wife was giving birth, and it was actually problematic, and so he had begun to pray. And at the moment, naturally, and at this moment, he, he had believed. But because he thinks, well, I must be able to explain this, it doesn't really work. So he forgets, he forgets the, the experience. And later in that chapter, he says he hides, he hides his hunting rifle and any rope because he's afraid that he will, um, he will um, commit suicide. So, running on a bit, um, he has been having a conversation with one of his, of his peasants. And Tolstoy is both very unsubtle because he runs his message home whether you like that or not, but he does it in an incredibly elegant way. So he is preachy without being unbearably, unbearably preachy. He's a brilliant writer. And he's very correct in the sense that he doesn't describe the epiphany. The thing about epiphanies is that they are glimpses. And you can't, the moment you try to grab them and put them into words. You lose them. Tolstoy doesn't do it. But um, Lyovin has this um, epiphany when he talks to one of the peasants. And um, they, 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 he tells him, you need to, to obey God's will. You need to live for God and for the belly. So not for your, for your, animal, um, for your animal self, basically. For what God? Um, and interestingly enough, what we're drawn to, what we want, for something incomprehensible. So he believes in this, there is something natural within us that draws us to God. And it doesn't matter that you don't understand what it is. You know, um, if somebody says, well, define your terms or prove or why. Right? So no, he says, this is, no one can either comprehend or define. So I'm starting with Tolstoy because he lays it out so beautifully. So happiness can only be achieved by its simplicity, by peaceful resignation to that which life has allotted to us. And here, this is actually, I mean, this is actually Tolstoy's creed. We all agreed on this one thing, what we should live for and what's good. And somebody who's hiding in the corner, last week heard me talk about a member of our community saying meditation is a way of getting in touch with your inner goodness. And I said, that requires a leap of faith, that we are actually good. Tolstoy is doing exactly the same thing. He says, we all know what is good. We have a faculty of goodness which is also the faculty for God. So 
all people have one firm, unquestionable, and clear knowledge, and this knowledge cannot be explained by reason. So this is all Jovin's interior monologue. And of course, this is Tolstoy talking to us. Right? So unity of all human beings. We all know what is good. If you don't, it means your faculty has become a bit eroded or veiled, but you all have the capacity for good. It's a powerful message. If the good has a cause, it is no longer good. Right? If you're doing it because you want a result or gratitude, it's no longer good. If it's had consequence, it's also not the good. Might not be the bad, but it's not no longer the good. Um, the good is outside the chain of cause and effect. Um, and this one, I actually what would like you, before I talk about it, um, I have this on two different slides, but I actually would like you to all, if you can, take time to read it. If you want me to, I can read it through. So this is the very, very, very end of the book. Um, and Kitty is Lauren's wife. And he has, he has been sitting, thinking, and he has, the, um, he has this idea that um, you know, he, he all of a sudden feels peace, and he feels happy, and he feels, he feels good. So, and he, he talks, he's, he's thinking about his life, and about his son, and about his, about his, um, um, about his, the state of his soul. So have a, have a read through this. Have a read through this. And I'd really like your, I'd le really like your opinions on that. So I want to, yes? Could you read it? Could I read it? Okay. 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 Good. Good. So this is Kitty, his wife, talking. And she says, ah, you haven't gone, the voice of Kitty suddenly said. She was walking the same way towards the drawing room. What? Are you upset about something? She said, studying his face attentively by the light of the stars. But she would still have been unable to see his face if lightning, again hiding the stars, had not lit it up. By its light, she made out his face, and seeing that he was calm and joyful, she smiled at him. She understands, he thought. She knows what I'm thinking about. Shall I tell her or not? Yes, I'll tell her. But just as he was about to begin speaking, she also started to speak. Listen, Kostya, do me a favor, she said. Go to the corner room and see how they've arranged everything for Sergei Ivanovich. I'm embarrassed too. Did they put in the new washstand? Very well, I'll make sure, said Lorvin, getting up and kissing her. No, I won't tell her, he thought, as she walked on ahead of him. It's a secret that's necessary and important for me alone and inexpressible in So have a, have a few minutes. There is another, it, it runs on a bit. Um, we'll, we'll do that afterwards. We've got enough time. Um, I've actually been much briefer than I thought I would. It obviates the need for sermons, doesn't it? 
It does. It completely does. It does. But you know, what about the relationship between the, 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 the two? I mean, I think this is actually, I chose it because I think he has brought a very, very profound insight in there. The, for the benefit of everybody, the moment you, you cannot communicate experience, and the moment you start communicating experience, you're using words, and that means you have to use categories that already exist. So it becomes something else. The moment you speak, you start interpreting, and it's no longer the experience. Brilliant. Well, yeah. Of course. Language is the best thing that we have. And in that sense, our reason, if I may call it like that, um, if I may call it that, is, um, is, the, is the best thing we have to communicate with one another because it's the thing we share. Language is the thing we share, and reason is the thing we share. So we need it. Except the fact that it's enculturated. So if you have experience, and you're Muslim, how do you know? Actually, he has, there is another um, X that I didn't bring because otherwise we end up with this long, 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 long thing. And there is another excerpt he, he says, well, um, because he had turned away from Christianity because the church is teaching doesn't make any sense to him. And you can see how he is actually the alter ego of Tolstoy. Right, and he's called Lyovin. Um, Lyova is the short, the sh it's the short form for Lyov. Lyov is the is, is Tolstoy's surname. Um, Konstantin Lyovin, Konstantin have constancy in there. So you know the name is speaking. So he is very much experiencing Tolstoy's own problems, and he is saying in that excerpt that precedes this scene, he is saying that um, I. I now know the truths of Christianity through my own right, through my own experience. I can't express it. But then how do I know whether people who are Muslims and Buddhists, I think he says Buddhists, Jews, Buddhists, and I think he says Muslims as well, um, how they relate to their God. And then he goes on a bit and then says, I have no, no way of knowing and I must trust that they also know. So actually this part eight of the book, is a huge, indirect, because it's a story, sermon on international peace, um, on tolerance, on interfaith, and the rest of it. So it's actually, it's actually very, if you read it with that in mind, it's very beautiful, yes. What about the relation of anybody, anybody here? Sure, loads of people here are married or in close relationships. What about the relationship between the two of them? Right. Oh yeah. 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 But also, you know, that we're dreaming of meeting this person who can read our mind, right? It would be so cool if my good friend, my lover, my non-existing husband, or something else could actually read my mind. This is so important, this is so important. Look, I'm gonna tell you it's so important. And the other person goes, hang on, I'm not sure what you're going on about. And I can certainly, he, she thinks, uh, he thinks that she's just looking at him and reads it, and that's not the case. 
So in that sense, in that sense, um, um, you know, brilliant psychological insight that there is something, no matter how close we are, and these two are very much in love and very close and very kind to each other. You know, they're your happy golden couple um, with a baby boy. Um, and still, even there, there is something that you just cannot in any way um, overcome. There's something that separates us from each other. So there, there is, you know, in here, a, you know, an exposition of that essential loneliness that we all have. And it's solid, maybe we should call it solitude, we shouldn't call it loneliness. But you know, in the end, we came into the world alone and we will go alone. That's quite heavy stuff. So lots of heavy stuff in here, in very light language. And I'm going to do, this is the last, yeah, this is the last scene. I'm going to read that one as well. And then we're going to um, have a little break, I think. Um, so this is the very end of it. It's actually the end. So he goes on, and it's all his monologue through which Tolstoy tells us what he thinks. This new feeling hasn't changed me, hasn't made me happy or suddenly enlightened as I dreamed. Just take the feeling for my son. Nor was there any surprise. And faith, or not faith, I don't know what it is. But this feeling has entered into me just as imperceptibly through suffering and has firmly lodged itself in my soul. I get angry in the same way with the coachman Ivan, argue in the same way, speak my mind inappropriately. There will be the same wall between my soul's holy of holies and other people, even my wife. I'll accuse her in the same way of my own fear and then regret it. I'll fail in the same way to understand with my reason why I pray, and yet I will pray. But my life now, my whole life, regardless of all that may happen to me, every minute of it is not only not meaningless as it was before, but has the unquestionable meaning of the good which it is in my power to put into it. So what is the thing that turns him into the new position? He had a conversation with one of his peasants who said, you must live for God and not for the belly. You must live for, and he turns this into, you must live for others and not for yourself. But we're never actually told what it is because you can't tell. But all of a sudden, he acquires this inner peace, and he also has realized that whenever he does something practical, um, interact with his baby, work on his estate, um, organize, manage, and so on, he feels peace. And that the anxiety um, he experiences and the despair all comes when he sits down and starts thinking about what is the meaning of life? What is the meaning of life? What is the meaning of life? So basically, it's a mixture of practical living and then of being told by somebody who's not very eloquent. But of course, you must live for God, you must live for others, not for your belly, not for yourself. And that somehow clicks. 
and then he comes back with this feeling of peace. You know, it's like try explaining why you love this person and not that. Or not, you know, why do you like this person? I don't like them, but you love them, why? It's on that level, on that feeling, on that feeling level. He says that we have this faculty for the good. And I think in the, in the context of the, of the narrative, what he means is, and there is another bit where he says, I know instinctively when I do something, when he's, he's, he's active, like he is, he is, he's actually being active um, with other people. Um, and he says, I know instinctively when I do something, whether this is the right thing to do or not, you know, which is great insight. I mean, I wish I had that conviction. Um, so I think what he means is because he knows what is the right thing, and he also, which means he also knows what is the wrong thing, he has the power to take the decision to do the right thing because he's got this faculty, and once you know, you no longer have an excuse to do the wrong thing. So if you know it's bad to exploit the peasants, which is the topic they're talking about, you shouldn't do it. That's, I think that's when you, that's when you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, the, 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 good, the, the great thing about, about this part, um, you know, which some people have argued, and certainly my students have argued, why is this tacked on? end of tell story. And then one person wrote a brilliant essay on it, and that encouraged me to actually bring it. Um, um, so is, is that he really, he really brings up the most profound things in very simple examples and very simple language. Yeah, he's talking about free will here at the very end. And he's found the well underneath the, underneath the um, the, the, the every day, and I think I, you know, this. If I, if, if there is anything in this whole novel which is very, very worth, and I actually will get my copy and wave it at you. It's got some 800 pages, and it's very small print. <laughs> um, so it's very, very. But if there is one teaching that I would like to, you know, that I can single out that is useful for us as meditators, it's this. Because especially people who start meditating or who start practicing something religious, they expect to be enlightened. They expect to levitate. They expect to have this great insight that will change them, that will turn them into good people or into different people. And very often, experience doesn't correspond to that. So this is very, very, very mundane. This is as mundane as it gets. I will argue in the same way. I will still be short-fused. I will accuse my wife, whom I love. I'll pick fights with her. But that doesn't mean that I'm not in touch with that well inside me. So it's not an understanding in a rational way. And it's not a miracle from above that there's you know, some kind of lightning strike and all of a sudden, he understands. So it's only what he had is only a glimpse, but it has leavened his, own, his, entire, his entire life. And everyday life, and life is full of beauty, not I can't actually, you know, spirituality is this thing in a box, and I don't have time to look into that box. 
because I've got an everyday life. I have to be a monk in order to pray. And then I have to pray seven hours a day or something like that. It's not what it is. It's faithfulness to the path that you have chosen and doing good in the, within the, um, you know, within the, within the, um, so this machine really wants a very full, fast speaker. Um, anyway, so, so it, it's, such, it's such a lovely, it's, it's all grounded. If I stick faithfully to what my life demands of me, then I'm doing the good thing. And when I'm doing the good thing, I'm with God. So that's Tolstoy's philosophy, really, in a, in a, in a, in a nutshell. It's, 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 quite a, it's quite a thing, actually. So maybe you know, there is more to this story than... Than, than, than we think. But it works so well because the story has a foil and it has this story of Anna um, which is entwined and which is very worth reading. Very much worth reading. Um, but yes, and, and until Soy after this he started writing religious tracts, he renounced his literature. Um, and some of them are a bit extreme, but he also wrote simple literature that he thought would be more accessible to people. There is one thing called The Death of Ivan Ilyich, which is very, very short. So if you're afraid of that, you can get that. Um, and it's brilliant. It's brilliant because he's such a good writer. Um, so he has accomplished a, a, great, a great feat. But don't expect your religion to give you a completely new life. It will enrich your life, it will, make your, it will feed your life like roots. But that's what he says. Um, and for a change, I'm inclined to agree with him. Um, there are many, 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 many ways in which I don't agree with him. Um, but um, for this, I, in this case, I'm very much happy to agree with him. Anything else? Did Tolstoy Jesus I'm not sure. I'm not sure. He did visit. He did visit Optinapustim Monastery. So he visited these um, famous elders who had, um, who had, um, um, uh, basically, not. It wasn't them who had resurrected the tradition of Hesychasm, the tradition of the Jesus Prayer. But he was definitely familiar with the with the with the. Um, it was very much a, a fashion of the time. Dostoevsky went there as well. Um, I don't think he would have necessarily advocated contemplation. He really was into social change, and he was he was a, he was a landowner. So um, you know, he actually did plow. Lyubin also goes and plows with his peasants, and they don't understand. They were like, but. Sir, Lord, what are you doing here? It's not your work. Elsoy does this as well. Um, so he was very much into social change, bringing literacy, and he founded a village school for peasants and so on. So he was socially motivated. Well, I think he was more a Martha than a Mary in that sense. I think being just contemplative would not have agreed with his lifestyle. Um, at the very end of his life, I mean, he said he threatened her a couple of times, you know, in the sense that you have that often in the Eastern traditions that if a man reaches a certain age, you know, should start looking after his soul. Um, and 
his personal life in some way contradicted what he preached. He had loads of children. He was also chronically unfaithful. Um, but especially in his later works and in Anna Karenina already as well, um, you know, he presents even family life, but certainly passion and sexual love as something that is a hindrance. But he seems to have liked it a lot himself. Um, but um, in the, in the, in it, shortly before he died, he actually did leave. Um, and he didn't get far. He, he got as far as the local train station where he died. So, yes. yes. Brilliant. So we've done Tolstoy. <laughs> I shall aim to do Dostoevsky after it. Okay. Um, so, having done Tolstoy, um, we shall do Dostoevsky. Um, I have lots of time for him, which is great. So um, I've entitled this bit of um, as get out of your get out of your head. So the person we will talk the, the, the novel that we will talk about now is um, Notes from Underground, which set Dostoevsky up um, for the bigger novels he would write. So last time I was here, I brought Crime and Punishment and the Brothers Karamazov. You can actually listen to that on SoundCloud. Um, I'm not um, plugging myself here at all. Um, so um, Notes from Underground set him, set him up for these. Notes from Underground, what you need to know, and I will remind you of it as we go through, it was written as a polemic, as a polemic against the radical philosopher Nikolai Chernyshevsky, who was the main proponent of this rational egoism that we had at the beginning. I'll talk, I'll talk you through that. But it was written as a novel, as a polemic about Chernyshevsky's tract, which he also called novel, um, which is called What is to be done? what is to be done turned into Lenin's Bible. Now, you can see that somebody here stopped me and said, it's astonishing how these Russian writers, I had no idea they were so philosophical. It's not a coincidence. Literature has always been the platform on which these things were um, hashed out, if you want. Um, partly because of strict censorship Literature was also censored, but um, partly because um, di different discussion platforms were not developed. And you can say a lot in literature that you couldn't put into a newspaper article, if you're clever. And it's led to some really, really good literature as well. So, so, um, so Russian thinkers, these are course novelists, and if you look for them in the bookshop, you will go to novels, not philosophy, but they're also thinkers. And in Ru Russian, philosopher is not something that's very often used, but thinker, is, is a common term. And it also usually means somebody who's not necessarily put forward a, you know, a systematic philosophy, but who thinks. So in that sense, these are definitely thinkers. And I want to actually thank two of my second-year students, I wanted to do a completely different session. And then I taught this to second-year students. And two of my second-year students 
um, that I can name them, they could Anna Mukhar and, and Naomi Sankaran, they did such good work on both Tolstoy and Dostoevsky that I thought, I am silly that I actually want to get into religious philosophers, this is the stuff to bring. So I'm very grateful to, to their, for their inspiration. So Tolstoy has given us a positive hero. And Tolstoy has given us a solution, in a sense, because Tolstoy likes to give you a solution. An elegant solution, an indirect solution, but still at the end, Leuven is happy. And he kind of found a way to, um, to do this and to realize his happiness. Dostoevsky will not ever do that. So um, before lunch, we'll get into, rather, into, rather than looking at a positive exposition of how to do it, how to do life, here you get a negative exposition of what's wrong. Um, no solution. And um, so the underground man is actually the first of Dostoevsky's characters who is really set with this problem of the dark side of overthinking, um, of something that could be healed by a contemplative attitude that he doesn't have. Um, and if you like Crime and Punishment, which, most, which is a novel that most people know, if you're intrigued by this character, Raskolnikov, the main hero, read this. It's actually very short. This is, a sh this is, not, this is a collection of lots of them. So this is not, the, the underground man is very short. Um, he is the, he is, he's the prototype for Raskolnikov. So he is very, very important. So, so he is one of, he is the first, um, Dostoevsky also, um, so he, he was like Tolstoy, um, he was opposed to Western rationalism, positivism, atheism, um, he was critical of the stance of the contemporary Orthodox Church, uh, it doesn't matter for the moment, I'll wake it up. Um, um, and um, he was critical of the Orthodox Church that he judged an arm of the state, which at the time it was. The overseer, the Holy Synod, had a, a secular person at the very top. Um, and he, had, he put forward a philosophy that the Russian people, the simple people, the peasants, and the, the, the connection with the soil, that they are the bearers of some genuine Christianity and you can always see um, that he, what he puts forward, is a vision of love, a vision of community that is kind of um, that might heal these people that he portrays, but it, it, it's never realized. But so Dostoevsky, another in a, in a sense very conservative at his time person. So the underground man, Chilayev is Patpolia, the underground man. Is like his later protagonist, embroiled in this struggle with his own mind. So a mind that plays the same obsessive thoughts over and over and over again. And the novel has only two parts. So Anna Karenina has eight. This one only has two. Um, two parts. And the first one is the underground man's confession, his creed, in which he actually examines loads of different deep problems of philosophy. Consciousness, reason, free will, you have it all there. Um, and the second part is a kind of memoir 
or the practical application of that creed in relation to others, which doesn't work. It's really sad. Anyway, um, it may be, I love it, but it's no easy reading. Anna Karenina can be read before bed. You know, you can read 50 pages of Anna Karenina before bed. It's fine. Um, it might wake you up again, but it's, you know, it's, it, it goes in just like that. This is heavy going. This is really heavy going, and you will see this. Um, you will see this in a second when I start giving you passages. Um, it's a monologue. So this person, this underground man, and puts forward this monologue. He imagines an interlocutor. He imagines interlocutors, of course, the reader. He imagines. So he, he, he acts, he projects. But it's all a monologue, and it's written in first person. So it's all I, 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 I. Um, and he goes round and round and round and round. And at some point, it becomes unbearable. But that is all part of the point. So he is an intellectual from the Petersburg period of Russian history. So um, Peter the Great founded St. Petersburg and made it capital, so only 1703. So very young capital. So it's only been there for about 100 years. Um, poisoned by European thought, divorced from the soil and the people, so a product of his environment, of a bookish education, and in a sense, he is not a living man. He is a caricature. And Dostoevsky precedes the um, novel, actually, with a, with a little author's note. And he says, well, he's not a real person, but people like that must exist in our society. They definitely exist. So he is a specimen. Um, I will read these out again and so on. But, and so the, 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 the um, book really begins with this examination of consciousness. And the translator here has written intellectual activity. The Russian word is saznanie, and saznanie is consciousness. And later on, she goes back to calling it consciousness. Um, I just want to so say what we have here, um, we all show up off with our diseases, and I, perhaps, more than anybody, don't let us argue I express myself clumsily. But all the same, I'm very firmly convinced that I'm firmly convinced that not only a great deal, but every kind of intellectual activity is a disease. You can understand the solution. Any kind of consciousness of disease would sound weird in English. Um, so consciousness. Hang on, what's he on about? Consciousness is you know, what we all have, and this is why we are human beings and not animals. And consciousness is, of course, also the thing that enables us to look at ourselves in the mirror. So, and consciousness is what allows us to look at the world, at other people, as objects. Not in the sense of objectifying, but I am here and you are there, and I'm looking at you and I'm talking to you. So there is inherently, in consciousness, inherently a rift between the one who looks, the onlooker, and the thing that is being looked at. And the thing that is being looked at might well be the onlooker himself, if he looks in the mirror, which is the problem of this gentleman. 
So there is consciousness in that sense. It's isolating. It's isolating. And that's what Lyorgan had when he said, there is something you know, that isolates me, even from my wife. Consciousness in that sense is really, you know, it opposes itself to the world. So um, to be overly conscious, I think we should say, if you had met him, if you had read the first chapter, which I haven't given you because, you know, we could be here until the evening and still not do the poetry, which I really want to do with you after lunch. he is overly conscious. You know, if I start talking about you know, what is all bad about consciousness and you start frowning at me and say, don't talk rubbish, I'm meaning over-consciousness. He says every kind of intellectual activity. He is, of course, he is not. Dostoevsky doesn't like him. The author doesn't like him. He is ridiculous. He is a specimen. He is an exaggeration. He is the embodiment of the person who lives according to the precepts of Chernyshevsky, which is why Dostoevsky puts him out there. So that's, that's why he is an exaggeration. Don't forget that he is an exaggeration. So he is overly conscious. So to be overly conscious is a sickness. And so this source of consciousness, in a sense, is suffering. But you can't really renounce it because renouncing it would mean renouncing your humanities and your humanity. And I like the, the underground man, despite him being a nasty piece of work, you wouldn't want to meet him. But so many of the insights he has about himself are the insights, are insights that we might have about ourselves if and when we're very honest. And at that point, we're grateful for the war between us, our soul, and that of others. As you said, if another person could read our mind at that moment, instant divorce. Um, so, so he says, he says, even at the moment, the consciousness that enables me to recognize all the subtle beauties of the highest and the best, I could not only fail to recognize them, but could actually do such ugly, repulsive things. So very human, very human. And of course, in in a, in a he is doing this in a um, in an exaggerated in an exaggerated way. One of the theses that he puts forward is, um, and if you pay attention to the chapters that I'm giving you. I'm jumping back and forth. And this is because there is no logical progression. He goes back and forth and back and forth. So one of the things that he says is that consciousness begets inertia. Because you know, if you look and look and think and think and weigh up things against each other, um, you become incapable of doing anything at all. And inertia begets boredom. So he is basically the person who sits at home, um, maybe today playing a video game, and cannot do anything about his life. And what he then does is daydreaming. So he says, um, the answer is that it was too boring to sit and do nothing, and so I indulged my fancy. Watch yourselves as closely as you can, gentlemen, 
and you will see that it's true. I imagined happenings, I invented a life, so that I should at any rate live. It's about, about taking offence and wanting to fall in love as um, flights as flights of fancy. So if you watch yourself thinking, too much thinking prevents living, prevents doing. Um, so he doesn't, he doesn't act, he doesn't live, he certainly doesn't engage with people. And what you have is really it's this, this game in front of a mirror. He watches himself act. And that substitutes for the real thing. So none of his offence, none of his love um, is real because it doesn't have another. In order, to, in order to, to actually live, in order to experience, you need another, another person there. And he is incapable of forming these attachments. Um, so so it, all becomes, it all becomes a mind game. And... Um, he, so, so, so here he, is, he says, um, I, um, the immediate legitimate fruit of heightened, heightened consciousness is inertia, and that is the deliberate refusal to do anything. I repeat, and I repeat emphatically, all spontaneous people, men of action, are active because they are stupid and limited. Let's stop there. So, first of all, he says every, anybody who acts um, does it because he do, they don't think enough. So he hates everybody, he, he, and he hates, he hates everybody because, in a sense, he longs for connection but can't form it. So what do you do then? You start hating them. So he plays, he's incredibly arrogant. The guy is unbearably arrogant. He places himself above everybody else. Everybody else is stupid. People with a real life, they're stupid. They only have a real life because they don't think enough. But I really like to have that real life, and I can't. So, so we really have this mind, this person, divided against themselves. If you want a portrait of self-hatred, read that book. Um, so, so they are stupid and limited um, because, because they don't think enough. Um, so he says, in order to act, one must be absolutely sure of oneself. No doubts must remain anywhere. But how am I to be sure of myself? Where are the primary causes on which I can take my stand? Where are my foundations? Where am I to take them from? And you'll hear the echo of the questions that Lurvin is asking himself. And if, you are, if you've been very attentive, you will now correct me and say, no, it's the other way around, dear Josie, because this was written in 64 and Anna Karenina was written in 78. So it's very, very likely that Tolstoy, well, 100% Tolstoy knew this. So it's very likely that he pulled some of the ideas out of there. So here is the original doubt. Where are the foundations for myself? If all I have is reason, I'll get into that in a second. If all I have is the laws of nature and science, where are the foundations of myself? You tell me in order to live, all I need to do is think. 
And here I'm thinking and thinking and thinking, and I cannot think myself any foundations, and then I can't act, and then I become this creature that he is. He really is a nasty creature. And so what you can also see, this is a thesis, right? So he, he is in this circular pattern, which is incredibly annoying to listen to. But he also, he really tries to present his findings about himself as a kind of scientific thesis. So again, these are the instructions according to the philosophy of rational egoism. These are how I should live. And here is the result. So thinking, 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 um, and I cannot, I cannot find foundations. But he is trying, he is applying, he's applying, um, he is applying the philosophy to himself, and so he tries to turn himself uh, into a specimen. He's completely impotent in all, like in, in, in all senses of the word. We'll get to that in a second. I just wanted to go vaguely chronologically. So first of all, this bit about consciousness, and we will talk about the philosophy in a second um, because it makes it clearer what it is that he's actually suffering from. But the the idea that a human being is a specimen, he is putting it forward like that. And what we will see in the next passage is that that is the thing he is most afraid of. That I am just a specimen. What, what if I am just a, an organism? What if I am just something that, um, that functions according to certain, um, to certain definable laws and rules? So, so that is, that, that's, his, that's his problem. And you can see, if you re this is unpleasant to read. And I actually tried, because I had to type all this up. My scans didn't work. Uh, now it disappears. Shock. Um, so I typed all this. And I tried it with the, um, with the dictation software. The dictation software was fine for tell story. So it's definitely fine with my voice. No. So the tone is unpleasant. Um, and this disharmonious, broken style, I think, exemplifies what was going on with him. So we have, we have this monologue that constitutes a dialogue. He's desperate for a vow for an interlocutor. Although he's also hostile towards his imagined interlocutor, so he polemicizes. It's very, it's very, it's very, very cleverly executed on the um, on the level of of um, of narration. Very different from Tolstoy, who has a dignified third person narrator, and you never feel that third person narrator. You never feel him. He can tell you what Lyubin thinks, but you never feel him. This is all first person, direct. This is very 20th century. This is very stream of con It is actually the original stream of consciousness. Um, very existentialist, very modern. So, um, so now we get into this um, critique, really, of, of, of reason and philosophy. Um, so here he sets himself again off against, uh, against others. He 
people with strong nerves, they are also the people of action. So he has loads of um, loads of, 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 of names for them. These gentlemen, although they're all full-throatedly like bulls, so you can see he felt hate everybody. Um, they calm down when they are faced with an impossibility. Now, this is one of the most iconic and tricky passages. Impossibility is a stone wall. What do I mean by a stone wall? Well, of course, the law of nature or the conclusions of the natural sciences or of mathematics. So basically, the things that you cannot refute. Right? And one thing that you cannot refute, all human beings need oxygen. Right? That's, that's what, he, what he says. Um, so when it is proved, for example, that you're descended from an ape, it's no use scowling about it, accepted as a fact. This is, of course, the time when Darwin made that discovery. Or if it is demonstrated that half an ounce of your own fat ought essentially to be dearer to you than 100,000 of your fellow creatures. And this, that this demonstration finally disposes of all so-called good deeds, duties, lunacies, and prejudices. So he's mocking. He's mocking the scientific mindset. Right? There's nothing to be done about it, because twice two is mathematics. Just try to argue. So what he's doing is this, this really, 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 really um, bugs him. And you wonder why does it bug him so much? What is wrong with mathematics? What is wrong with evolution? What is wrong with scientific theories? Now, the thing that's wrong with them um, is he is living in a time, he is living in a context which tries to reduce the whole human being to this. So he is desperately asking himself, is there something else to the human being besides this? That's the question that motivates him, or vexes him, really. So this inevitability of um, natural law is really, is really um, vexatious. So reason. Um, he calls this the law of nature, which this which bows to necessity. So he is poisoned. He is poisoned with the, with this with this idea that human being is a purely biological creature. So if I am a purely biological creature, then I have no free will. Then I am determined, um, and and um, then I have no scope to act and to make my own, to take any of my own decisions. Now, this is, maybe I shouldn't say this on tape, but this is one of my favorite passages about, um, about this, this book. So he says, um, nature um, doesn't ask you about it. She's not concerned with your wishes or whether you like her laws or not. You must take her as she is, and consequently, all her results as well. And then he says, because this is vexing him, but good God, what have the laws of nature and arithmetic do, to do with me? When, for some reason, I don't like these laws, or twice two. Naturally, I shan't break through the wall with my head if I'm really not strong enough. But I won't be reconciled to it simply because it's a stone wall and I haven't enough strength to break it down. 
So he puts forward this image of human being banging his head, of him banging his head against that wall, that brick wall. Um, and you know, we have this metaphor, your head to the wall, um, simply because, and he knows he will possibly break his skull. Um, but I love him for that. I love him for that. And I don't like him, I love him for that. Um, so so, so the, the, the natural law, the, determ the determinism of the world around us and of the scientific mindset fundamentally contradicts the some knowledge that he has, contradicts some knowledge that he has about himself. What does it have to do with me? So he throws his own individuality at this inevitability. So he fears that all he is is an animal, and that not even an animal is a, a biological creature reduced to simple cause and effect action, and that he has no free will. So, and he is what he's trying to do. He tries to prove that he is not determined by these um, laws. He is not just biology. Um, so he needs to have some control. He needs to have some control. And his will is what brings him to bash his head against the wall. This is the only thing he can do to assert that he has some control, although this is clearly painful and against his own best interest. Um, and of course, you might, um, you might wonder whether what he's doing is really free will, he seems quite compulsive in this. He's actually quite, um, he is actually quite um, compulsive. So the problem actually with this is, now the first bit in, the first bit in, in red is the, philosoph the philosophy of Chernyshevsky in a nutshell. So so-called rational egoism. Now, egoism is, well, everybody acts in their own interests. Chernyshevsky kind of turns around a bit and said everybody acts in their own interest. And if everybody is enlightened enough, if everybody's reason is developed enough, they will understand that their best interest is the well-being of everybody else. Now, that became in some watered-down form, the premise on which the revolution, Russian Revolution argued. So if I understand, if, if I'm properly enlightened, I will understand that my best interest is not to have a big house, but for every one of us to have a small room. Doesn't work, does it? Um, but so he, this is his dig at Chernyshevsky. So, Tell me, who was it who first declared Chernyshevsky, um, proclaiming to the whole world that a man, that a human being, does evil only because he does not know his real interests? And if he is enlightened and his own eyes open to his own best and normal interests, man will cease to do evil and at once become virtuous and noble. Right. So that's the that's the um, that's his dig at Chernyshevsky. Um, so that is, of course, that is, of course, um, problematic in that sense. And 
so to begin with, when and all. And then he says, look, people are now proclaiming this philosophy, but um, let's look at human history. To begin with, when in all these thousands of years have men acted solely in their own interests? Of course, the proponents of the new materialist philosophy would say, but they weren't enlightened. That's why they didn't act in their own interests. Comes the underground man and says, men have knowingly, that is, full understanding of their own interests, put them in the background. Not because anybody drove them to it, but simply and solely because they chose. Um, they, they did not choose to follow the appointed road. So here comes that conundrum again. To pursue a bit, they chose to pursue a perverse and difficult path. That shows that obstinacy and self-will meant more to them than any kind of advantage. What if, and here you can see his own scientific reasoning again, what if it sometimes so happens that a man's advantage not only may but must consist in desiring, in certain cases, what, not what is good, but what is bad for him. I.e., staying up late, drinking lots of alcohol, although you have to work in the morning. And if so, and he knows that it is yes, if such cases are possible, the whole rule is utterly destroyed. Right. So he has refuted Chernyshevsky's premise. And we all know, I think, that he is right. right. Human beings don't act in their own best interests. And whether our own best interests are the, is really the well-being of everybody else is a completely different, you know, is a completely different level of that. But on the most ba in the most basic fashion, we all know that we don't always act in our own best interests in the same way that we don't act in our best interests economically. All economic theory is based on, you know, homoeconomicus, a person who takes reasonable decisions. And we all know if we, I'm not sure about the gentleman here, sorry, sexism alert. Um, I know certainly about myself, if I walk into a shop and it's nicely lit and there is a nice shop girl and she shows me pretty dresses, well, they've got loads of them, um, and my wallet is empty, I will buy another one. So we all know this doesn't work. Anyway, um, but um, you know, what is the problem? He has he has actually refuted Chernyshevsky. But what's the problem with him? You know, why is he not an alternative? The trouble, the trouble with him is that his way of talking, his way of constructing arguments, and his utterly wretched life shows you that he clearly is a creature of reason. He, the problem with reason, the problem with logical argument, is that you cannot refute it by logic. If an argument is logically sound, I cannot refute it by logic. I have to have something else at my disposal. But he doesn't. All he has is logic. 
So he ends up sitting in his room, banging his head against the wall again and again and again. Because that is the only way by which he says, look, you say human beings act in their best interests. I show you this is bad for me, and I'm going to do it just to prove the point. So he, has, um, um, he tries to refute reason by using reason. Um, and this is why his talk is so strange, and this is why his life is so wretched, and his education and his imbibing of this philosophy and the city of Petersburg and everything else have made him in that way. Now, now the, the, the way out would, of course, be to interact with other, other human beings. I haven't brought you any more text. Um, you will see in the part two, he, um, he speaks of his love for whole mankind, and sometimes he has just to go out and he wants to embrace all of humanity. And then he interacts um, with some old school friends of his who humiliate him and the rest, and he says he loses his, ability, his desire to embrace all of humanity. Um, and even, you know, even his idea of love is, um, is, a, is an abstraction. Nothing is real. It's all an abstraction. He meets a prostitute and um, talks to her. And then he finds at some point he actually, no, um, he, actually, um, he actually feels, he's able to feel pity. Um, but it is actually, no, it is actually not realized in, in, in his in his life. Now, the people, what this, what, what, what his example, if you want, clearly shows, people are not just rational. So they can't be at home in a society that is organized solely according to the principles of reason, which is what the materialists and the radical critics of which Chernyshevsky was one what they really argued and advocated. That is a kind of really, really um, watered-down version of West, or, or, or not watered-down, but heightened version of certain Western ideas. Um, of course, there is more to it. This is Dostoevsky, and this is, this, this, is, this is actually deeper than I can, I can make it out to be in the short space of time. Yes, 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 yes. I mean, I, I'm, what, what exactly do you call romantic humanism? Janiszewski. It, well, you know, roman it's not so much the philosophy of romanticism, it's something slightly different. It's not romanticism. Yeah, it, it ends up with determined. Absolutely, yes, yes. That's the step. It's nihilistic and hopeless. Exactly. And, and um, I wish the two of us could merge our brains, because the third, the third author who played a part in this polemic is Turgenev. So Chernyshevsky writes, What is to be done? Turgenev writes a novel called Fathers and Sons, and Dostoevsky writes The Underground Man, Notes from Underground. And in Turgenev, you have a negative hero who is a, is a nihilist. So you had a, a nihilist, the nihilist. They were, um, you know, they were young people who were burning with these ideas. 
with the ideas of rationalism, materialism, and positivism. So, so absolutely yes. So thank you even for bringing up the ism. So I just thought I wouldn't bring in another ism. Yes, yes. No, that's great. That's great. That, that's absolutely what it. That's absolutely where. So this idea, and you know, this 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 idea about humanism, about an atheistic, rationalistic humanism, leads to nihilism, leads to despair. And it certainly is not a way to organize society. Now, part of what is problematic is that the underground man himself is not a positive hero. He is a product of this. So Dostoevsky shows forth a disgusting, distorted, ugly specimen where this, where this has happened. And it really seems that what he wants to say is that an a normal or a society that is held together by perhaps spiritual but certainly multifaceted and irrational bonds um, sublimates certain nasty demonic things within human beings or holds them in check that just jump out like that in a society that is based only on this rationality and rational um, egoism. Now, you ask me, um, you might want to ask me that uh, why are you showing us this if this is a day about guides to contemplation? Let's get back to contemplation. This is the WCCM after all. Um, so, first of all, of course, get out of your head. Um, your consciousness cannot heal the problem that is over consciousness. So I'm completely stepping away now from the 19th century context, taking this to a general level. Your consciousness cannot help you if your problem is overthinking. Um, second, I think this is a beautiful polemic, and it's fine, it's gone black, don't need any more. Um, it's a beautiful polemic against the sole reliance of a single faculty in the human being, right? So if you reduce the human being to a single of its many faculties, and that becomes very inflated. The result is disaster. That's two. Um, so the other thing that you could read out of this is perhaps the, this, Dostoevsky really refuses to accept that a human being can be an object. What the rationalists, what the materials did you know, society, people are objects. And I mean, one of, the, one of the premises, one of the things Marx put forward is being determines consciousness. What does this mean? It means that if I um, improve your material conditions, maybe your education, maybe your housing, this will automatically, by some kind of miracle pathway, turn you into a better human being. We, I think, all know that this is, it isn't that easy although your conditions have a bearing, perhaps, on how you behave, they don't determine it. Now, Dostoevsky says, no, 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 the human being is not an object in that sense. So, so, so in a sense, he, dis he, he doesn't want to allow this hierarchy between, between humans. 
and 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 actually the only the only way the only time when the um, underground man experiences anything human and real is pity when he after he humiliates this prostitute Lisa who is actually trying to honestly engage with him so the, the, the underground man is a complicated figure. And Dostoevsky definitely approves, the, you know, he's, he's definitely um, 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 positive, he's approving of the underground man's attacks on rationalization of social bonds. And rationalization of social bonds are common to socialism, and so Chernyshevsky's philosophy here is representation of Western socialist ideas, but they're also common to capitalism. You know, please, 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 nobody quote me as having um, said something bad about socialism without looking the other direction. It's also true to capitalism. Maybe it's even nastier in capitalism. You know, um, um, rationalizing social bonds. Dostoevsky. Why is the, the underground man a negative hero? Because he's so, he's so individualistic. He's, he's solely obsessed with himself. Solely obsessed with himself. So, and that is his sickness. He would, if he, if he was able to interact with other humans, um, he would be able to step out of that, of the ground, which is his room which is St. Petersburg, which is Western influence, and so on. He cannot. So, so, so Dostoevsky really accuses him of having betrayed living life. Um, and actually, the, the underground man is an arrogant, he is an arrogant um, um, individual, because he's not just talking about himself. He's very rhetorically, um, rhetorically advanced. So he is, in a sense, the conscious individual per se. He actually talks that he, about his thoughts. Um, what I am thinking is, 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 is what every intelligent person will be thinking. You know, that's actually rhetorical manipula manipulation. Somebody thinks something that you might not like, and you said, well, you know, um, I... You know, every intelligent person understands that my position is correct, and you think, "Oh, but of course, I'm an intelligent person." Yeah, yeah, we're all like me. If you are, if you are, if you are, you know, you can try this. It's one of the basics of manipulation. Uh, try it on somebody else. Um, so, 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 what he is giving us, you know, at some point, he says, "This is what every intelligent man will think." And at some point he says, this is what every man will think. Whoa. So, so what he's giving us is not just the thoughts of an eccentric personality. So Dostoevsky is actually saying, and I'll leave you with that, and you know, that's a nice heavy thought before lunch. Um, Dostoevsky is actually saying this totally crushed consciousness. Is human consciousness in general, if it's not kept in check by something else, so get out of your head is, 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 his, um, is, his, is his thing. And actually, when I look at the other heroes, when I look at his negative heroes, when I look at Raskolnikov, and when I look at Ivan Karamazov, that's it. So if you want 
Dostoy if you want an easy way into Dostoevsky, try this. Um, it's short. Um, it's actually it's actually not too hard. And generally, Dostoevsky is not that hard. Um, John Mayne says that meditation, contemplation, is a way to self-knowledge, and by that, the first step towards the knowledge of God, and you will find that all the great spiritual teachers say self-knowledge is the first, is the first um, step towards knowledge of God. And they don't mean the objectifying self-knowledge. They don't mean the self-knowledge that looks in the mirror and pulls apart, you know, those features I like, those features I don't like, this is what I need to improve, and so on. But it means the self-knowledge as being deeply within yourself, accepting yourself. So the, 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 the integrated knowledge of the human being. Well, the, I think the, if you start accepting yourself, first of all, of course, this man is proud. He is isolated. He is proud. Um, he puts himself above everything else and above everybody else. Now, the sort of loving connection with loving awareness of God with where you understand yourself, where you feel yourself as God's child, as God's creature, um, will enable you to see everybody else also as God's creature. So that's what we do when we do communion. You know, though we are many, we are one body because we all share in one bread. So that's, that's what we do there. And meditation helps you because the, the presence of God within you is the thing that we all share. It's the thing that we all share. And it's actually... It's actually, whereas if you do theological argument, you again have, you know, have your, maybe yourself pitted against somebody else, or yourself feeling very, very close to somebody because they happen to agree with you. But, but the, the stepping back, stepping back from that self-centered view on the world, and you realize that you share, into some, in, share in something that is much bigger than yourself. So in order to connect with others, you basically have to transcend your little ego self. Does that yeah. help? It's not that they reject these ideas because they come from the West, but they reject these ideas and they come from the West. Okay. That's what it is. So basically, um, in the same way that actually Enlightenment philosophy came from the West, Peter the Great's modernization course came from the West. So rather than at the Russian tradition, which was very much based on the Orthodox Church and traditional way of life and so on, Peter was looking at progress, at technology, at um, a modern version of, 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 of state governance. And that stuff came from the West. So it was imported in a way. And the philosophy of certainly of people like Feuerbach and Marx came from the West. It's not because it was Western, but because it came from the West. The trouble with philosophers 
is that they usually they're not politicians. Um, so if I'm philosophizing, if I'm standing behind a lectern, I can play with all kinds of things. I think Marx would turn in his grave or wish he was never born if he had known, if he could know, what happened in the 20th century in his name. He was an economist. He was talking about the economy of developed nations. And we might guess, we might judge this wrong or right, but he certainly didn't mean to create a religion. And it has been, it has been turned into a religion. If you, look at the, if you look at communism, you will find that the idea of salvation, you know, of, of, of uh, the end point, the teleology, that the world is moving towards a definite end, the last judgment, and so on, has been neatly taken out of Christianity and similar religions and, you know, put into a secular philosophy. Well, the end will be reached when we have communism. You know, Khrushchev at some point was promising communism by 1980. So the world comes to an end. And, you know, everybody will, and history will come, you know, the movement of history will come to an end. So these philosophers were not necessarily, Johnny Tufts, you're not sure, but they were not necessarily, they were not making policy. They were not making policy. I think that's what needs to be said. And then people who were making policy took their ideas and turned them into gospel. That's what happened. When, when, you diminish this, when you diminish the human being, when you diminish the human being who is a social being um, and a being of connection and a spiritual being, when you diminish them, then these demonic forces that are somehow inherent, they can come to the forefront. And also, more so, um, the underground man, I didn't bring any of that, um, he tells you how much he enjoys being abused because you know, he kind of looks at it from the outside. So you get this primacy of the aesthetic, you know, some, some kind of aesthetic enjoyment in whatever happens to me. So the ethical goes out of the window. And you think, well, maybe this is what, you know, I'm, this is a conjecture. But you get people who say, well, I killed this person because I wanted to see somebody, I wanted to see or watch somebody die. Where did that come from? So, you know, you can see this person whose, whose boundaries are eroded in very weird forms, you know, says, I actually enjoy this because at least it is something and I can look at it. So the, the, the knowledge of what is good and what is not good is, is totally eroded. Lurvin's integrated, the integrated personality is completely eroded. I think that's important. So where does the good from None. None. Um, you have this stirring of humanity when he sees Lisa, uh, when, he, when, he, when, he, when, he, when he pities Lisa. You know, there is, seems to be a genuine, a kind of remnant of something. But that's it. He is not good. Anything. Or anything. Right. Yeah? 
Um, well, it was a philosophical polemic. I mean, it's not books. This is the great thing about novels. They are not handbooks to implement. But I, it got people talking and it got people thinking. Now, that's definitely a good thing. You know, if you want, something came out of it because I realized how much this is true that this demonic almost self-will that says, I don't care whether this is good and right because I want to. And he says the most prized possession that any human being has is their own will. And he shows it to me through his, his, his psychological musings and so on. So I think psychological insight is good, then this book has helped a lot of people. We are going to um, have experienced complete change of tack. We are moving from prose to poetry. And we're also moving from the 19th to the 20th century, um, but that's a coincidence. And actually, the first person I'm going to talk about, um, who is a poet, but you might know him for this massive novel, Pasternak's Dr. Zhivago. So that's a really, really, really big novel. Very, very small print. Um, but also beautiful poetry inside. Um, so in a sense, we have, we've noticed or we've seen that these two writers, and Tolstoy more so than Dostoevsky, um, they are still being didactic, right? They're still, it's discursive, it's explaining, it's talking. Um, and both of them, at the very least, put forward a mindset that's steeped in Christian values. And yes, they've been writing or they're writing fiction, and they show, they don't tell. But there remains this, this discursive didactic element to it. So prose is an external language, if you want. It's the language of argument, of declaration. So it, it belongs into that field. Actually, what I'm putting forward here is not a definition, not a scientific definition. It's my own take on it. So you're welcome to argue with me about it. Um, so if we look instead of lyric poetry, lyric poetry works very, in a very different way. I don't know, maybe people are less familiar here with poetry. Does any, do people read poetry? Okay, okay, good. People do read poetry. Great. All right. Um, so, so poetry doesn't work with concepts. Right? I've explained, especially in the case of Dostoevsky, I've explained these big philosophical concepts. Poetry works with association. So actually, maybe I could put this across. Um, so the, 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 the lyrical mind works like music, association, feeling. And poetry, and how, how do you know? whether you deal whether you're dealing with lyric poetry. Very simple, try it, summarize it. If you can summarize it, and it still makes sense, it's not a lyric poem. Again, this is not a scientific de definition, this is me. But poetry cannot be divided into form and content. Right? The content is the form, the form is the content. Because the significance of it is not in the topic that it treats. So there's, lots of people are put off poetry um, 
because in school they're being told to analyze a poem, tell me what the poem is about. And that puts anybody on poetry. And I hear lots of um, assenting, assenting um, grumbling. So it's, poetry requires us to bring a very different quality to our reading. Maybe our heart, maybe our senses, but certainly not just the head. You can't summarize it. Um, so so in, in, that, in that sense, a poem, a poem's sense exceeds what the word means. The, word, the trouble, of course, poetry, poetry does use words, but it exceeds what the word means. What matters is how the word means, how the words mean. And, or maybe we should say the value of the poetic word is what it means, not what it says, right? So not what it says, what it refers to, you know, there is a chair, so chair, but what it actually means, what does the chair evoke in that particular context? So poetry, poetry is not precise description, it's evocation which also means it will work very differently for different people, depending on what, what it evokes in you. And the, the, the significance or the semantics of, of any word in poetry depend on its position in the poem, on related association, not just on its literal meaning and also not on its figurative meaning. So, the, in order to experience a poem, the reader must be prepared to go the distance, so to, to, to enter this. And um, Olga Sidakova, who I will be talking about, and she is, this is actually hers, um, she says um, the reader is invited on a journey, and what is expected of him or her is participation in the life of form. That's quite interesting. What is expected is participation in the life of form. So poetry is not something we can passively consume. And I think we all know this because when we're on the beach and we just want light entertainment, we tend to take detective fiction or similar. Um, poetry, poetry does require some form of engagement. <coughs> poetry does also something else. Poetry forces us to acknowledge, and here we come to what you said at the very beginning, it forces us to acknowledge that ultimately what language can do is limited. So words can gesture towards things, that's how we understand each other. I mean, we can describe things in everyday life, that's fine, language works for that. But when we're talking about the deep things, right, we gesture. And if we have the same associations, if we have the same culture, if we are aligned with each other, then we might understand the same thing. But words cannot encompass things in their entirety. And um, I really like um, what a, this is such a, how to say, it has become a hackneyed phrase that's so well known in Russian. Um, the 19th century poet Fyodor Tyutchev, he said, a thought once uttered is a lie. A thought once uttered is a lie. And he doesn't mean that you're lying, that you're telling the untruth. Um, but you know, the moment you put it in words, you're already limiting it. 
and you're already putting it in a concept and somebody else might misunderstand it. So um, in, the, in poetry, although stop, I don't like um, although we use language, we must, um, we must do it in a different way. We move beyond language, a different way of engaging with it. Maybe like prayer. There's a lot of in contemporary theology actually, and we've had a couple of the we have had a couple of talks here by Martin uh, see Martin Geit? Malcolm Geit. That's Ma- Malcolm Geit. Um, Mark Burroughs, um, Canon Mark Oakley. They've all been talking about um, poetry and their association with prayer. I'm not going to do that. But association, gesturing towards, and this kind of acute awareness of the limits of language that can actually lead us into silence. Siddhartha, now this is this doing things that I don't want to do. Um, Siddhartha confirms this again when she says um, po- um, poetic Poetical semantics are like prayer, so she likens she likens um, poetry to prayer, and um, so 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 that is that is in a sense what we are going to do. And why did I put these quotes up there? The first one, and um, poetry began. Yelena Schwarz. Now she is a bringer of chaos. She is a Petersburg poet who died in 2010, and she when she says poetry began as holy madness, um, she hints, of course, of the tremendous power that is inherent there. And at her time, so she wrote in the late years of the Soviet Union, Soviet um, official ideology, very much dominated by the materialism and positivism that I described to you. Um, Poetry goes beyond the surface of what is intelligible. And materialism, matter, is surface. I think that's what she means. She's not a philosopher. She's a mystic. She's a paradoxalist. Um, If you try to analyze Schwarz by logical means, it's very frustrating. Don't go there. But poetry goes beyond the surface of what is intelligible. I think that's what what she means. And of course, Inspiration as frenzy is, is a cultural stereotype, right? The poet in, in, in a state of inspiration granted a sudden fleeting glimpse at something. Inspiration. Um, contemporarily acts as a knowledge that is normally hidden, hidden in the unconscious. And insight, and we've seen this with Lorvin, Tolstoy's Lorvin, insight is profoundly personal, it's experience, um, it's not accessible to reason, so it can't be described or explained. This is why you come up with metaphors like this. Holy madness, it dived into the sea of madness and came back to the light of reason in its predator's teeth, the pearl of an unreasonable thought. It's amazing, that one. Um, so, so um, that's why we need metaphor. Poetry works by metaphor because it cannot access, uh, these ex- this experience cannot be accessed by the rational mind. And metaphor, metaphor is irreducible to you know, a precise 
explanation, metaphoral work. So here you can see a way of using language. You know, tell me what poetry is. It was gorgeous when it dived into the sea of madness and came back with a pearl of an unreasonable thought in its predator teeth. Try saying that to somebody who tells you what is poetry. Try saying that. It's great. So the poet's literary gift communicates this vision without explaining, without rationalizing. This is actually quite poetic saying. So Sidakova, who is kind of much more, they were friends. Sidakova is still alive, um, who is much more kind of measured. She is also a scholar. Um, she's an essayist, a scholar, a translator. She's one of the most erudite Russians around. Um, so she calls this inspir inspiration is a miracle. Um, this principle called inspiration is wonderful. The special power of poetry, non its non-discursive idea, and practical contemplation lie in its ability to draw the reader into this experience. So this is my slightly clumsy translation, but non-discursive idea, practical contemplation. So here we come, you know, according to this definition, the poet is a contemplative, a mystic. She also says poetry liberates the soul, and I would say it liberates the part of the soul that seeks connection. You know, the part of the soul that in the underground man was desperately kind of crying, I actually want connection, but couldn't find it. At the longing for connection, something larger than ourselves. Something larger than ourselves, yet in some way of a nature that we can relate to. So that's the original religious impulse, isn't it? The desire to connect to something bigger. Um, I don't want to... I don't want to... Come on. I don't actually want to go into this too much. I'm also very happy to send out the um, presentation to anybody who wants it. Um, I just find he has Austin Farrow, a 20th century theologian based in Oxford, and um, he has actually, I think he, he has spot on. So, so the mind rises from the knowledge of creatures to the knowledge of their creator. Here you have the, the knowledge of God. Um, but this does not happen through this sort of knowledge which can analyze things into factors or manipulate them with technical skills or classify them. It comes from the appreciation of things which we have when we love them, when we are in relationship. It's good, no? I don't agree. You don't agree, okay. Um, well, you can, you, can have it, you can have it out with Austin Farrer afterwards. Um, so, so, so um, I personally, I quite like it. I find it helpful. But um, this is the good thing. This is the good thing about um, literature. It invites, it invites um, discussion. So that's all I want to do um, theoretically. So I want to go on to first Mark. Okay, um, great womanizer. Um, so he came of age as a poet in the early 1900s and 1910s. And he was part of that amazing modernist, I wouldn't say revival, but certainly flowering of culture that got us Russian ballet, that got us the modernist painters. We just had a massive 
an exhibition of Natalia Goncharova at the Tate Modern. Um, that was there for a month and month and still drew crowds. Um, we have other poets like Anna Ahmadova, you might have heard about, Alexander Bloch. So great, great fertile, um, fertile decade just before the revolution. Um, and so, of course, also in Western art, cubism. Well, like, um, Russia didn't do things in isolation. And um, he was one of the few of these modernists who didn't either emigrate after the revolution or perish under Stalin. He actually survived, together with Anna Akhmatova. Um, so he was this living link to pre-revolutionary tradition. And he was of Jewish origin, but baptized in childhood, and he was very familiar with the Christian tradition. Um, so so that's, an, that's an, interesting, an interesting detail about him. However, um, he only started working with these archetypical images and stories of the Bible very late in his life. Um, he wrote a bit of prose in the 1920s. Um, he wrote much really daring poetry in the 1910s and then got into a slightly um, more moderate style in the 1930s. And then he wrote this throughout the 40s, um, published, I think, actually 57 rather than 58, but not published in Russia, published in Italy in Russian, smuggled out. He couldn't have it published. And bear in mind, Stalin was already well and truly dead at the time. Stalin died in 53. Um, 57, not possible. Um, won him a Nobel Prize, which he was forced to return. He wasn't allowed to accept it. He would have, if he had accepted it, he would have been thrown out of Russia, of the Soviet Union. He didn't want that. So it was available in the Soviet Union only in foreign editions that had been smuggled back and were then usually reproduced, often by retyping. Imagine typing that. Um, until 1988, only published in Russia in 1988. Um, so the, why am I, of course he was a poet, but why am I bringing him here? So this hero of the novel, it's a very, it's a rambling novel about the, the years after the revolution and just before. Um, and the, the main figure, Dr. Zhivago, Zhivago has something to do with reason, reason is life. On Zhivyot, he is alive. So um, he is a symbolic figure as well as, as, as a, as a um, kind of really imagined protagonist. So speaking names, great thing in Russian culture. Dostoevsky's Raskolnikov, Raskol is schism. So you, 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 you have something like that in everybody. But um, Zhivago is a poet. And you might know Dr. Zhivago as a love story. And um, there is a big, great love story in there, has been filmed, or has been turned into a, into a film. Um, it's also philosophical, it's historical, you know, it's in the best tradition of, um, of the Russian novel. But Zhivago is a poet, and at the back of the novel is a cycle of poets, is a cycle of poems, 25 poems that were allegedly, they're of course written by Pasternak, they are allegedly written by Zhivago. So I'm going, actually I'm going to talk about just one of them. Um, I'm going to analyze with you one of them. 
Um, but and they are um, nine out of these twenty-five poems feature biblical stories. Um, so the New Testament stories. And the, the, the worldview, they actually, if you don't want to read the novel, which is a shame, actually, this is, this is a great work. I told you, and um, when I came in, I told you I want you to read long novels and lyric poetry. So get this, and you get both of them in one go. So this is, this is great. Um, so so the, the, but the, um, the poems really exemplify the worldview in the novel. And that worldview... That worldview is, 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 is concerned with the interconnectedness of all things. Everything in the world is connected, visible and invisible, through a common center. So he had this idea in Russian, siplenia, linkage. Everything is linked to everything else. And together with that came his belief that... Um, the, 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 the biblical stories are not supposed to explain life discursively, but to show it. And we know Jesus himself as a great teller of stories. Jesus taught the help of parables. Right? And parables, parables don't explain, they don't, they're not moral teaching. Um, they are they're important because they have so much symbolic power. So this is Pastor Mack's take on it. We still think that the most important aspect of the Gospels are the, most, are the moral pronouncements and rules inherent in the commandments. But for me, the most important thing is that Christ speaks in parables taken from everyday life, explaining the truth through the light of the ordinary. This is based on the idea that any exchange between mortals is immortal and that life is symbolic because it is important. There's actually Javago saying that. Um, so life is symbolic because it is important. That's, a, that's a, an interesting one. So, interesting, Christmas. Um, so, <laughs> so in a life, you know, if life is symbolic, the poet becomes very important because if life is symbolic, of course, metaphors are symbolic, and the poet can interpret these. Um, so he is the interpreter of the metaphors that life throws up. And, and, and so, so, so basically, these poems are Pastor Mark feeling his way back to God, recovered faith, and in the poems, we witness Ruvago, the poet, returning to creativity. And he, um, he actually associates creativity and, and, and resurrection. Basically, most of these poems, and you will see this in a minute, um, they, are, they are nature poems. And you'd be so, so he, is, he was fascinated with trees. He was fascinated with nature. Um, and so they become the symbol um, they become the symbol of um, the link between the human being and their surroundings. Trees are, of course, also a universal symbol of life, of fruitfulness. So the poet returning to his work, you know, the tree that is starting to produce fruit. And 
Christianity and many religions will acknowledge it. So we've got holy trees and pagan religions, sacred trees. And in the Bible we find, give me some to everybody wake up, um, some trees um, in the Bible. Cedar. Good, cedar tree, yes. Um, anywhere at the very beginning? Yeah, the, the tree of life. And what was the tree that... Um, <laughs> exactly. So, you know, the reason that we were here is so, that um, apparently a, a female couldn't um, resist the temptation of tempting her man um, with the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. The burning bush, right? The mustard seed, great, yes. Oh, yes, 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 yes. The, fig, the barren fig tree cursed by, cursed by Jesus in Matthew 21. And, and um, Pastor Mac has written, that looks better, um, Pastor Mac has written a whole story about it. Uh, uh, sorry, has, um, one of the poems is actually about the fig tree. It I will read it to you. And also, what I have done is I've cut the whole middle of it because it's very, very long. Um, so there is a lot about trees who are watching a procession coming to church and who almost look as if they want to go to church themselves. So it's, 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 it's quite, in that sense, amazing. But I love this poem. It's called, it's called In Holy Week, Nastras Nui, in Holy Week. And Strasnaya Nidelia is Passion Week. Stras is passion. Um, and it describes so the earliness and still so um, yeah, it is, well, it is still the dark of night and still so early in the world that the stars in the sky are without number and each is bright as day. And if it could, the earth would sleep through Easter to the chanting of the songs. So this earliness is, of course, the dark of an early spring morning, right? Before Easter in March, the mornings are dark. But it's also something much bigger. Um, it, 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 it is so early in the world. So sleep refers to the state of the world before resurrection. And this, it is still the dark. The earth is still quite naked. So this composition returns and returns. Um, and, and he, go, he, goes, he goes, I can read a bit more actually. It is still the dark of night and still so early in the world that the square lies like an eternity between the corner and the crossroads and dawn and warmth are a thousand years away. The earth is still quite naked, has nothing to wear at night. While it rings the bells, in response to the choir inside. And from Maundy Thursday till Holy Saturday, the water burrows into the river banks and spins the whirlpools. And then I've cut quite a bit, and I've cut quite a bit, um, where the trees seem to participate, really, in the Easter liturgy. So we basically, we're up in the night of Holy Saturday and um, Easter liturgy. Um, and these trees become like, like people, and yet they are always recognizable for what, for what they are. So the nature is really compared to the congregation 
Um, but Pasteur Mac doesn't really, doesn't really create, he doesn't put forward this distinction, here is nature and here's people. You really need to think about whether um, about whether to, to whether you're talking about trees or about people. Um, and then and then at the end so I really like this one. Um, where am I? And March scatters snow to the crowd of cripples at the porch, as if a man had carried out the Ark, the Ark of the Covenant, open it, and given away everything to the last shred. That's a big image. I'm not sure what it means. Big image. Given away everything to the last shred. The singing lasts till dawn, having wept their fill. The psalms and acts reach more softly into the empty, lamplit street. So we have the Easter vigil. But at midnight, beasts and men fall silent, hearing the spring rumour that as soon as the weather changes, death can be vanquished through the travail of the resurrection. Now, that's an interesting one. We're not actually moving into Easter. We're not actually moving into Easter. Death can be vanquished. So we are at this moment of suspense before it might happen. This unrealized, this unrealized potential. Um, so, so, but we have this. We also have this experience, really, of a connection of unity between things and between heaven and between heaven and earth. Um, yeah, uh, no, never for labor, never for labor. Um, labor, actually, in Russian, is interesting. It comes. It, labor is related to the word field, since you're asking, to the world, word field of human race, of parents, of relatives. Completely different. So in Russian, they, they're, kind of hide, they're hiding the fact that it hurts and it is strenuous. They just, they just make it something great that adds to the human race. So, 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 so we have what we have here. Melody saw silent and the spring rumor, so this great promise. And you, know, you have to be a poet to get away with it, to call the promise of resurrection the spring rumor. What's he saying in Russian? You got me, you got me thinking now. Let, let's see. Let's see what he says in Russian. Spring rumor. Absolutely. Um, literally that. So, so, so this is but what you have. It's an experience of, of connection, of unity between things, between heaven and earth, between nature, between human beings. So this liturgy, and of course Easter, Easter is related to spring. It's the archetypical idea of spring as the return of life. Easter turns it into a symbol we have two or three hours of Easter vigil, and we leave when it's still dark. Um, we're not waiting till six in the morning or seven in the morning when it gets light. But I think that's the idea, that you wait until it turns, until it turns light. But so we've got this, 
this new beginning that is spiritual as well as physical. So there are lots and lots of very physical images in here. Um, and so Christian, this Christian imagery, you know, does he tell us anything new about the gospel? Is he interpreting the gospel? No. He is using Christian imagery as a symbol, really, as, a, as, a, as, as something that expresses a mystical cosmic experience. He's not telling us anything new about um, anything new that the New Testament would not tell us. And I think most of the poem, which runs on over three pages, most of the poem um, would not, if you don't know your New Testament, if you can't see it as called um, Holy Week, I don't think you would necessarily. I mean, apart from the last word, I think it would, it would take you a while to cotton on to the fact that he is talking about Easter. You know, it's interesting because um, because I was talking to somebody during lunch who, um, who pointed out Thomas Mann and Dostoevsky that there are parallels between them. And you can really see that people um, in different ages and different periods and different decades, the same thing was in the air for different people. And they all went with their own tradition talking about it. So, so actually, no, you are right and I'm wrong. Если бы земля могла, она бы Пасху проспала. So if, uh, could, if, um, if it could, the earth would sleep for Easter, literally. So the poem actually rhymes in Russian. Um, if, you translate, if and when you translate Russian, you have to make a decision. Um, do you want to reproduce the rhyme, or do you want to come up with something that sounds natural in English? Um, and those two things are intention. And often it doesn't work to reconcile the tension. So this person has um, gone for make it understandable. So, 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 so basically, and there is another poem which I didn't bring because it's very long and to um, pull out things is, is, is hard. Also from this, from this cycle called Chuda, the miracle. And there Christ encounters the barren fig tree. Um, and it ends with the words, uh, the miracle, a miracle is a miracle, and the miracle is God. And it strikes in an instant, amidst confusion, by surprise. Um, so this, this miracle, which is God, really affects all humanity. And Within the, within the cycle, and certainly within the novel, it refers to creativity, the poet's creativity also, that comes unexpectedly and during moments of utter openness, of utter vulnerability. And so it requires, in a sense, requires opening, requires sacrifice. Interestingly enough, this cycle opens with a poem called Hamlet, which is probably the most famous one of the Zhivago poems. I haven't got this in English, certainly not with me. Um, so so, so this, this is, a, this is an, an important cycle. And the reason why I brought it, the reason why I brought it is, apart from, from, from it being beautiful poetry, it is... The, it is very explicitly biblical subject matter. 
that doesn't want to tell the Bible stories anew and that doesn't want to be devotional at all, but uses them in this symbolic way of gesturing towards, um, towards an experience to make it accessible by imagery that we know. Spring, Easter, it's, these are archetypical images. These are the kind of, if you want, these are the kind of images that we all have an association with. So the poet hopes that they will resonate within us and so enable us to participate, to have some, some of the experience that he had or something vaguely similar. So they are not in that sense about the Bible. So um, I've done belts and braces for this one because you have all the, um, you have all the um, poems that I'm going to talk about and even one that I'm definitely not going to talk about. You have them as a handout. Um, but I'm sure that those slides will work just in order, just to spite me. Um, so, um, Olga Sidakova, who is alive um, and well, um, speaks English, translates from various languages, furthers the dialogue between orthodoxy and Catholicism, um, literary scholar, historian of the Russian language, incredibly erudite and very nice in person, and also a really good poet who in the 1970s and 1980s was um, only publishing her books in self-made typescript editions, um, what we might know as Samizdat self-publishing, and so has really become <coughs> great and um, there are various editions of her work in translation available in Moscow and in the countryside. Hmm? Okay. Um, so remember, it's her who said the principle called inspiration is wonderful. The special, of power, special power of poetry, its non-discursive idea and practical contemplation lie in the ability to draw the reader into the experience. So the, um, this experience of poetry, and I, I kind of used Pasternak because I wanted to do Sedakova, which is not being fair on Pasternak. But Pasternak has, still has very, very naturally this idea of the world as where everything is linked, which of course, after the war and in the, so in the West through aggressive secularization in the Soviet Union due to atheist policy, um, and then the experience of the war, the experience of the 20th century. So that worldview as a collective, um, as, a, as part of the collective consciousness, I think, has been, has been lost. Sidakova, interestingly enough, certainly in her essays, seems to espouse exactly that worldview. So Pasternak works as a good way of setting her up. She might otherwise um, come across as more difficult. It's interesting that we find art that is contemporary more difficult. Um, and I don't mean art that is facile. There's also a lot of facile art around. Don't mean it. Um, but so the experience that the reader is drawn into when they read poetry is, for her, is inherently spiritual. I think we can posit that as a precondition. And the key for her, again, 
the key to understand the, the relationship between religion and poetry. And I've talked about, I've spoken about her at a conference um, that, that was exactly exploring this idea between spirituality and poetry, prayer and poetry, religion and poetry at Heathrop College. Um, her key to understanding is the conviction that poetry is not about something. And you remember my introduction. Po she really is somebody who says it, who spells that out. Poetry is not about something. So she says, poetry is a particular state of life, a particular experience of meaning. So she really thinks that poetry touches about touches upon things in a pre-linguistic sense in the way that music and the visual arts do. Now, I love it that she makes the effort to actually spell it out, that language that is trying to do what music does is working against itself because we use language in the everyday and then we use the same words in a very, diff <coughs> in a very different sense. And that, that becomes difficult. So perhaps words find it difficult to overstep the threshold of semantics to reach unmediated meaning. Now, what is unmediated meaning? That is already something. But then she says, perhaps the difference between the poetic word and the everyday word is that the poetic word springs from a meaning that precedes language or is situated outside language. Now, there are lots of philosophers, lots of contemporary thinkers who would take issue with that and would say, well, there isn't any meaning that is completely situated outside language. I think that is not our concern here. Um, but she, that is basically what she is convinced exists. So, and then she says, the word on its own, now this is actually my interpretation, but the word on its own is not enough to overstep this, this threshold that she's talking about. Um, so in order to do that, the ordinary word, the everyday word, becomes poetic. And what is poetic? Well, it becomes, um, it is spun into a web of harmonies and of association that is created by stanza, by rhyme, by rhythm, that is by poetic form. Um, we're doing a bit of Russian here. So orthodox theology basically affords great significance to form. Um, and um, Dionysius taught that when a person is drawn to God, all that was disorder in him becomes order. And what was without form acquires form. So form, outward form, is a symbol of inner harmony. Outward harmonious form is a symbol, is a sign in a person that somebody has attained wholeness, closeness to God. And this is at the heart of the theology of icons. And the theology of icons is, of course, the uh, icons is the quintessential, quintessential genre of religious art in Russia. So, Outward form symbolizes inner harmony. And the Russian language supports 
a theological reading of form. And I'm, the reason I'm doing this is not because I want to teach you Russian vocab. The reason I'm doing this is to give you more of a grounding in why I'm making these claims about poetic form. So obras, obras means image, in the same way that, um, that, that we use it. But you could also say chilaivichuski obras, so the image of a human being, meaning the likeness of a human being. And obras is also the word that Russians will naturally use for icon, icon as an object. So that's one. An image, an icon. Interesting. Bez abrazny. Bez means without in Russian. Bez abrazny is an adjective. And it literally means bez, obraz, without form, without image. And it actually, in its everyday meaning, it just means ugly. So Sambur's bez abrazny is ugly. But because of the etymology, because how it is derived, it has these connotations of something that's unsightly, but also something that's formless, right? And bez abrazie, which is the related noun, without imageness, without formness, means ugliness, but it also means disgrace. And it can also be if you are, I don't know, if people engage in debauchery, drinking, this, that, the other, you enter the room, and that would also what's going on here. So, but you can see the very idea of form and art has spiritual connotations. And this is what Sidakova, who is a historian of the Russian language, that she's an academic, she teaches at Moscow University, she is retired now. But um, she's a historian of the Russian language. She's, she's uh, collated a dictionary of and church Slavonic terms in everyday language. So she's steeped in this stuff. So this really informs her, informs her reading. So, so, so what then, what then is the thing that enables her to go, to, to, to have a go at the problem, to approach the problem from the other side, and then we are going to do a poem. Um, what is it that transforms these words, these, the poet's raw material, into art. And that is beauty. Again, something distinctly orthodox in the reverence of beauty as something conferring grace. So why is beauty spiritually significant? Because beauty reveals something beyond itself. So if you are Orthodox Christian, you might say, beauty reveals the origin of beauty. The origin of beauty is God. So the quest for beauty then becomes a spiritual journey. Um, even if you're completely secular and you've read nothing but Immanuel Kant, um, he says, well, the contemplation, the looking, looking at beauty gives pleasure that is not subject to con concepts and not directed towards the achievement of a goal. So you get disinterested interest, interest that is good in itself, not directed towards a result. So beauty is the relationship between beauty and spirituality is, you know, is there. Um, I said the quest for beauty is a spiritual quest, it is a journey. And of course we know that 
the, the idea, the, the field, the semantic field of journey is used to describe the spiritual, our spiritual seeking, so the human desire to discover who we are, who we are here, why we are here, where we are going. All these big questions that actually moved the Lurvin, the underground man, and certainly Dr. Zhivago. So religious traditions have always used the motif of the journey in order to describe this relationship. You know, the religious person is seeking God, must return to God, although God is very close to you as well. Um, the age-old practice of pilgrimage to holy sites, which is an outward manifestation of an inner journey, nothing else. Um, and then, of course, if you go to the Bible, you will see plenty of journey metaphors. I'm not going into that. Now, so in that sense, the artist is the poet, the artist is on a journey towards beauty with the help of form. And beauty is not pretty, or beauty is not a synonym, is not a synonym of prettiness. So beauty can be terrible. Beauty can and should be awe-inspiring. It's not decorative. And Sidakova describes the, um, I had this previously here at the bottom. Sidakova describes her, her quest for beauty as beauty cracks us open. This is the pain of the change of the self, the painful birth of the unknown I. <coughs> That's almost broadly an, a broad analogy to the idea that in order to attain, um, in, that in order um, to enter the kingdom of God, you need to renounce everything, follow. Um, the pain of the change of the self, the unknown I. So, so that's, that's what, she's, what she's doing. Um, and if you turn to your handout, but I also put it on the screen, um, the poem that's called The Wild Rose, Diki Shipornik, which is my absolutely favorite um, Sidakova poem, and I'm happy to have it out with anybody who says anything else. I can prove it. Um, I, even, I even proved it to an editor. Um, so, so, but the reason I've chosen it here, it's not because I like it, but it's because it really illustrates her idea of beauty and of suffering, of enduring beauty, as a Christian spiritual quest. Um, the, it also induces her key concept of, um, of participation, of participation. And actually, the translator has chosen to use the word compassion for uczestia. You can do that. Uczestia, sa uczestia, can be compassion, being with. But Sidakova uses it a lot. Um, and a lot of the time, it really means participation. So I'm not entirely, uczestia literally means participation. Uczestia is to participate. Um, so, so I'm not entirely sure about this translation. Um, however, of course, compassion's hidden wound is what Christ is, is doing. But I'll do, before we go into the poem, I'll try something different. Let's not get into what is the poem about, what does it mean. I'll try to um, interpret, um, imp interpret 
um, orally and by association before we get into the into the into the concept. So basically, the poem really. Um, the wild rose, Kikishipovnik, Shikipovnik is a dog rose, it's that thing that um, um, gives these round fruits. Um, well, there's nothing particularly Christian about it, we'll see it in a moment where, it's, where, it, where it is Christian, but um, it's, it, it's this image of layered, uh, this, this series of layered images that grow out of each other, so like the blossoms, like the, like the leaves of a rose. Um, and it is, people have described it as a meditation on the loss of perfection, on pain as a precondition of existence. But I'll, I'll try and explain why it is beautiful, and no, that's not going to work. Um, but um, artwork, okay, you can't argue about taste, and beauty is subjective. Um, so, but it is very, very hard for a reader to resist the draw of this poem. I might, uh, um, if, if we, if we um, read it in Russian. So it has heavy rhymes and assonance, so related sounds, but then the line length varies. So it, it stops. It's very mellifluous, but it is not repetitive. It's not obtrusive. It's not obtrusive. Um, and let's have a look. Let's have a look at how these rhymes can actually foster um, deepening association between beauty and suffering. And you will see that she creates this association not just of what the words means. Yes, she has the word suffering in there, and she has the word wound in there, and there is a lot of talk about what is beautiful. But she does it on a linguistic level. So she says, "Ты развернёшься расширенным сердцем страдания, дикий шиповник, уранящий сад мироздания." So you have страдания of suffering, and мироздания, literally the edifice of the world. So it could be the universe first, could be the world. Um, you have them in the same case, and they're perfect rhymes. Страдания, мироздания. We cannot not associate them. When we read that, we associate them. Stradanya mirazdanya. If you're in the world, if you're in the world, you will suffer. And then you have the um, the two syllables that are dark blue, razvernyoshya i vrasshirim. Um, that syllable means apart. So. Um, so the, 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 the idea of change as growth, change means growing, and change means opening. You cannot op change if you're not opening. Ras is an opening movement. Ras means to unfold. So literally, rasvernyorsa, you unfurl, you open up. And rasshirimi, which literally means widened. It's a participle, it means widened, but translated as wide open. So, and then you have the heart of suffering in there. And then the ra sound of echoes ranyashi means wounding. So this is actually more, there is more to it than meets the eye. And of course... So that's, that's my 
Yes, 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 yes. Rana is a wound. Ranyashi is is he who wounds or that which wounds. So 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 this is and this is of course something that the translation will lose. The translation does lose that that quality. And you can go through the entire poem like that. You can go through this. So it's oral and intuitive before it becomes conceptual. I'm not saying it's not conceptual, but it is intuitive way before it becomes conceptual. Hmm? Interesting. That's the question. That's the question. I would think it's the wild rose because it's the only thing that it could be, but it could also be it could also, it could also be something else. Um, the biblical, the false range of scriptural allusions in this poem um, really comes to you when you read it more and more. Um, you can see Job. Job, um, so the one who names you will out argue Job. Um, so there you have an Old Testament figure who, what do we know him for? Argues with God, but suffering and he endured it and he argued with God, but he didn't renounce him. So the, you know, the, 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 the epitome, the archetype, the symbol of endurance and faithfulness. And yes, he did shake his face at fist at God. Um, so, 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 um, so, so there you have the, the, and the association. Um, in, in Russian, the name of Job, Petersburg, so it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, um, it's a, an object case is rhymed with the whitest of all. So white, purity, an interesting, an interesting situation. And the central image, the central image of this, I would say, is the garden. Ranyashi sad mirazdanya, garden of the world. So, and the, you know, where do we have gardens in the Bible? Yes. Earlier, thank you. The Garden of Eden. So there you have perfection and the loss of perfection. And Gethsemane, thank you, great. And Gethsemane, yes. So you have the Garden of Eden, um, perfection that's kind of vulnerable, needs to be guarded against intruders. If you look at Genesis 3, the angel with the sword to prevent Adam and Eve from coming back. Um, But this garden here has clearly earthly elements, right? It needs to be tended. It needs to be it needs to be tended to in order to bring forth this rose and the rose as an image of beauty, I think, symbol of beauty. Crimson rose that unexpectedly replaces the wild, the white flower. Right? So then she ends the wild rose walks like a stern gardener who knows no fear, with a crimson rose, with compassion's hidden wound under his wild shirt. Diki shupovnik idiot kak sadovnik surovy, ne znajushi stracha, srozy punsovy, 
со спрятанной раной участия под дикой рубахой. So interesting also that the wild shirt rhymes with fear here. Um, so the image invites a large number of interpretations. So, you know, you could read the stern gardener as Jesus, who was wounded to death with, for his loving compassion, wearing a crown of thorns. Siddhakova herself says she was writing about Gethsemane on, on, on Easter morning. When um, uh, she was, when uh, Mary Macklin mistakes the risen Christ for the gardener. So the best interpretations, but this poem, all these interpretations flow into each other. So um, the best interpretations are always dynamic. Um, so they will, they will allow multiple connotations to come together in ever new combinations. So every time I've written about this or talked about it or mentioned it, I've done something different with it. It's really funny. And then you read Siddhakova and her translator um, having an, an argument about it, and it's, it's, it's hilarious. So um, I really, um, I really, really um, like this. But I encourage, and of course this doesn't, this um, is harder to do with poetry and translation. Certainly possible with, with good English poetry. It doesn't need to rhyme, you know. English is stradanya, mirazdanya. They're grammatical rhymes. They're a, they're a neuter noun, a neuter noun in the genitive. They automatically rhyme. You know, if a Russian comes to you and says your language is or your poetry is crap because it doesn't rhyme, um, you give them you give them a few English words and say, okay, make a rhyming poem out of this. In Russian syntax is fluid. You can combine words any way you want in a sentence. English doesn't allow that. No grammatical rhymes, fixed syntax. So English works. There is a, there is a reason why so much contemporary poetry doesn't rhyme. Um, so don't be, don't, be, don't be put off by that. Um, there is good, very musical poetry out there. And I encourage you to not just read what it is, is it about, but actually how does it achieve this feeling? Maybe this poem doesn't do it for you. To me, it has, <gasps> and that's what, that's what I want from poetry. For you, it might be something altogether different. I've got one more thing that I want to talk about, and that is a journey poem that is actually also discursively a journey. I wanted to do this first, to dislodge your thinking from, oh, it's a journey poem, it's about a journey, and this is how it works. No, the journey is internal, the journey is what this does. Um, but the poem is called The Journey of the Magi. I have, you have the whole thing on your handout, whereas I only, I've only put very, very little, and I think, yeah. Um, I've only put these two things on my um, on the slides. So, you know, the journey again, a convention, the journey itself is a convention that is used to render a spiritual process palpable and communicable. The journey is a symbol. And those of you who like English poetry, you will know um, T.S. Eliot's Journey of the Magi, which Siddhakova translated, she loves Eliot, um, and which is also, of course, about a journey towards faith. 
So, so, so an internal journey. So, seven septets, seven seven-line poets, and a one-line and a one-line um, coda, one-line ending. Um, actually, interestingly enough, the journey of the Magi in the Bible is just one verse. One verse, Matthew 2, verse 1. And the rest of the story of the Magi is how they, um, is, is, is how they went to, um, to Herod, how um, he interrogated them, how they visit baby Jesus, and so on. But only one verse is about the um, actual journey. But poets and folklore, everybody knows the star singers on the 6th of January, have been more attracted to the journey. And um, this poem, this cycle, really, so this long cycle, is a meditation on life itself and how, how this journey of life is shaped by people's desires and how these desires always shift. Um, it's quite complicated, again, this rose petal um, approach of layering symbols is, 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 is there. So written at a similar time, actually, as Diki Shapovnik, as the, the, the wild rose. But what they, what they experience, you know, he who has ridden so long and so far, waking and going to sleep again and being dreamed as a small light, melting on the tongue and penetrating us like a last sweet, like an open tie from the line on the hand to the star in the broadest river of the heavens. And then you have this, this then, then you have this enjambment across to not just, a, not just a, a stop here, but across to a different poem. He knows how the aim diminishes on the journey. That, I think, is where that leads to. The aim diminishes on the journey. So they actually, what they, um, what is important, and you see this is only septet number two, what is important is that their journey goes on for five more poems after that. Um, but the aim diminishes on the journey. So what becomes important is the movement. And it is both incessant but it's also goal-oriented. Goal and she calls it an incessant goal-oriented movement which does not want to have a goal. And I like that. She also says this is like being in love. So we might want to meditate on that. And this notion becomes much more pronounced towards the end of the cycle. So this is the penultimate poem. The penultimate poem, number seven, and I think, or number six, number six. Um, and I've marked it, I think. Uh, there was only silence and the endless journey. They rummaged, the rummage through chest. I think it wants to say they rummaged. Um, oh no, the rummage through, it's, mis it's missing a, a hyphen. The rummage through chest of minerals and stars had long ago bored them to death. Like a face without a face, the end staring them in the face tormented them, as though not having found the ring in a mass of rings. They were going away now, surrounded with their end. Difficult, difficult. But a face without a face, 
the end staring them in the face. So you have this circular, circular movement there, coming back again. Um, and if you look at the, if you look at the last poem, and this is the last thing we're going to look at, the very last poem. You're almost done. Oh, how the heart yearns! What a disaster! You who laid the fire like a thing among things, why did you call me and are looking here? I am not the best of many in your abyss. Have mercy on this poor life. Have mercy that it never loved it, never loved itself, and that the star carries us, carries like water. So they were there, where they always wanted to be. Now, you have this poem works on a number of interlocking metaphors water, darkness, light. They are primal images that are replete with Christian symbolism, and we are not. Um, we could do exegesis. You know, what does darkness stand for if we look at the Bible? What does light do? What does water do? I will give you living water to drink, the water of baptism, um, and so on. Um, so so, so the, this, this, final, this final poem, number seven, really is a, is a lament for the rootlessness of humankind. And interestingly, interesting, the star carries us, carries us like water. Could also be drags us like water, kind of dragging them along. Um, so, of course, the lodestar is no longer the star that points at a goal. The star is the thing that motivates them. The journey is ongoing. Um, so not a life-changing encounter, but something that carries on. And, of course, the water has a cycle, and a cycle that's quite safe. Rainwater, ocean, rainwater, um, water, water in, in the soil, water in the river, and um, then ocean again. So water in itself is, 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 is an ambiguous metaphor, really. the eternal restlessness of existence. But at the same time, everything in this cycle is perfectly safe and will not be, lo will not be lost. And then it has the um, Christian added symbolism, the living water that Jesus promises to those who trust in him and baptism. So I will leave, I, the, the last poem I'll let you um, read at home. I just love it. It's completely different. It's later and called for, um, um, from a different cycle. Um, but basically, just to wrap up the, the poetry session, um, what, poetry, what poetry really, I, I hope, uh, this has shown you or has reinforced something that you already know, poetry points away from itself. So poetry points away for itself towards the thing that it, that, it, that it connotes. And poets like Pasternak, poets like Sidakova, who come with a spiritual, in a sense, mission or, a, or bring their own spiritual life into their writing, into their writing presence, 
they underline again and again and again that the apparent mundanity, everyday reality, that which surrounds us, can actually serve as a source of spiritual understanding. So I think Pasternak with his simple nature poems that are so different from everything that he wrote before. And Sidakova, who uses, who uses poetry, who shows us how in, in a time where this kind of difficult, spiritually imbued poetry was actually forbidden, she couldn't publish it, shows us um, shows us that poetry goes beyond the, goes below the surface is a way of accessing that which is below the surface and maybe bring it out, give it, articulate it because um, in order to in order to appreciate it in order to communicate it it needs to be out there and that's a realization I think that we um, we we owe to the poet so, Poets, poets see things as being of value in themselves, but also as symbols, symbols of a creation that is actually full, that is full of spirit, and that is not limited to its, um, to its surface. And so I think that is why, even today, we still like reading poetry, writing poetry. So. Um, do read some poetry, um, and I think it gives us it gives us a different it gives us a different idea to what we can do with language, and also alerts us to the power of language alongside its limits. So it might um, might lead us into might lead us into silence. Thank you.